1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi
0: everyone, Cheryl Arkell here. Most of you know we recently released the 2022 Better Reading Top 100. Nearly 10,000 readers voted for their favourite book and those votes were collated into our annual list. This year, the top spot went to Craig Sylvie's Honeybee. To celebrate his number one spot, we decided to re-release a podcast I recorded with him when Honey Bee was first released. Craig is wonderful, and I enjoy this conversation immensely. I hope you do too. Craig Sylvie, welcome to Better Reading.
2: It is my honour and privilege to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's my honour. I really feel as though we should have a drum roll. drum, And here's Craig Sylvie. Well, that was terrible drums, but here you are. <laughs> New book, what is it, 10 Years Later, Honey Bee?
2: It's 10 Years Later, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's frightening to think about that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. For those that don't know Craig, he's an award-winning author and screenwriter from Fremantle, Western Australia. His critically acclaimed debut novel, Rhubarb, was published in 2004. His best-selling second novel, Jasper Jones, was released in 2009 and is considered a modern Australian classic. Published in over a dozen territories, Jasper Jones has won awards in three continents, including an International Dublin Literary Award shortlisting, a Michael J. Prince Award Honour and a Miles Franklin Literary Award shortlisting. Jasper Jones was the Australian Book Industry Awards Book of the Year for 2010. Now, Craig, uh, 10 years later, as we just said, returns with his third novel, Honey Bee. Craig, as I said, just before we, we started recording, wow, it doesn't happen that often that a follow up to a bestseller is going to be another bestseller.
2: Oh, well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you, hear you say that. With, uh, with less than a week to go to release, I could, I could do with that kind of confidence. That's good yeah. to know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, everyone that's read it in our office has loved it. I loved it. Oh, that's I mean, wonderful. You certainly capture the voice, the coming of age voice, the voice of young people in a way that is just, um, how can I describe your writing? It's, it's powerful in its simplicity, I think. And your storytelling is, it's full of emotions. It's, Even though I felt that Jasper Jones had a real sense of place, as I think Honey Bee does, but it's more character-driven and it's the characters that we really empathise with and want to be with and want to spend time with. Talk to me about how how it is, what the feeling was really, because no one would have known, I mean, Rhubarb did, did well, but no one would have known that Jasper Jones would have resonated the way it did and become a bestseller. And then for the author to sit back down and say, okay, and now I've got to write my next book. That, that can't be easy.
2: Right. I, I think enough time had transpired between the trajectory of Jasper Jones, the journey that that novel took uh, and, and the remarkable response that it inspired, enough time traversed for me to, to sit down with a clean slate and start again. It's a, it's a curious thing for a novelist to be so fortunate and so privileged to be able to almost curate a, a book over a number of years, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the longer... Jasper Jones uh, made its way through the world. Um, the further away I got from it, in a way, and, and and the more it belonged to its readership, and it's a really beautiful thing to to watch. I wasn't uh, um, I wasn't aggrieved to to be removed from that process at all. It's a, it's a really amazing feeling. And so by the time uh, I came to sit down with Honeybee, I was just ready to to live privately again and to intimately involve myself with a story. And so I felt qualified and I felt able uh, to, to start again in a lot of ways. And and it allowed me to sort of displace a lot of those notions of expectations and potentially disappointing readership and, and all these things that you can't control. And just to focus right in on the story. Because if you do start to concern yourself with the opinions of hundreds of thousands of people, it can be a bit stultifying and in fact it can actually dilute the work if you're trying to please too many people all at once. So it's really only occurred to me <laughs> that the, the degree of expectations and and that anxiety about potentially disappointing people has really only come to a fever pitch uh, about now, now that it's a book, now that it's about to hit the shelf and, uh, and now that we're about to release it. But you know, as you say, the, the early responses for Honeybee have been, I've never experienced anything like it, and many at my publisher haven't either. It's been overwhelmingly, rapturously positive, and uh, that just fills me with hope.
0: Mm. No, I, I think you're right. You know, I just want to go back to that beautiful line that you just said, which I, I think really works for me. And I've, maybe I've known it, but I've never articulated it that the book now lives with the reader. It's so true, isn't it? They keep that book alive.
2: That's absolutely right. And it's the beautiful thing about my job is a a writer and a reader meet in the middle through this constellation of letters. And when a reader cracks open a novel and lends it the authority of their imagination and their soul, they make it their own. And an author offers a blueprint, I think. You know, they're a guide, but... The degree of sophistication that a story can offer, the extent to which a story can move you, it's down to the connection that the reader makes with the characters and the story they're in. Mm -hmm. And it's intimate. It's very unique in that sense. Books are very unique because as readers, we make them ourselves. So we tend to feel quite proprietary about the books that we love because we make them. They're ours. And when we refer back to them later, they feel like memories that we've had, the things that have actually happened to us in our life, which is what I refer to when I uh, when I say that a book drifts away from its author and belongs to its audience. It's a, it's a really special thing. I, I resisted it a little bit earlier in my career, but I came to appreciate the fact that it is the most profound beautiful aspect of of literature.
0: No, I totally agree with you. I think I've always thought it, but I've never really articulated it. People often say to us at Better Reading, you know, what makes a good book? Or authors or readers or whatever, thank you so much for introducing me to this book. Or thank you so much for promoting a book. But I always say to them, and maybe I was trying to say the same thing. It's our job, like in a way, we're just notifying people we're notifying readers that it's out and I'm not taking away from the work that me and my staff do because they're such great writers and reviewers but in a sense that's what you're doing because then it's up to the reader to make that to have that connection and it's really up to the story we can only do so much and then it goes out to the world to find the audience
2: that's right and and books are so intimate sometimes they find us at the right times they belong to us. They're intrinsic to us as, as readers. And so, of, of course, there are going to be subjective responses. Or all we can do is maybe identify elements of storytelling and style that, that feel universal, that, 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 uh, that we can advocate for people to read. But beyond that, you know, it's, it's so private. It's so intimate. Reading a book is a solitary activity that makes us feel less alone you know, we, we join a strange little community when we read a book. We share an experience, even though it's uh, ultimately our own. We can then go on and connect with other people people that have had that same experience and discuss it. And that's really the remarkable thing about uh, a community of readers. It's really beautiful.
0: I want to get on to how your career started and, and, you know, growing up and how you came to writing. But before I do that, and you probably know this, you've probably been reading what I've been reading, but there is an absolute surge at the moment in book buying and people reading because of COVID. And a lot of the Yes, it's because people are isolated, but people are telling me, they're telling us in our community that they're finding solace in reading. And I think that that, that goes back to you and the intimacy and, and finding a connection, because when you're feeling mm. like you're feeling disconnected, being isolated, that books do give you connection, don't they?
2: That's absolutely right. Yeah, And I, and I think there's, obviously, there are various ways that we can connect in, in a modern world, but nowhere near as intimate and meaningful as to sit inside a novel. And so I'm not surprised that in a period of great insecurity and upheaval where we've been sequestered uh, and we feel removed, that we seek out uh, stories and we want to connect with people both real and fictional. I'm not at all surprised uh, to, to hear that people have turned to books and it's really heartening, you know, books are a mainstay. You know, they're future-proof and they're a beautiful uh, constant in our lives. And so it's nice to know that we still turn to them in moments such as these.
0: Mm, absolutely. So tell me, what made Craig Sylvie? Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me how you came to writing.
2: Well, reading. Ultimately, you know, if I could boil it down to a word, um, reading was something I just instinctively did as a kid. No one had to urge me to, to, to go and collect books and read them. Uh, it was just something that From the moment I had that ability, I was obsessed. I loved. You remember some favourites? Oh my goodness, yes, yeah. Uh, Look, as a as a, it might surprise you to learn that as a very early reader, I really loved the works of James Herriot. I really loved uh, All Creatures Great and Small, and for some reason, the Adventures of a Yorkshire Vet just really spoke to me. I just (laughs) ate those books up. I don't know why. It's really odd. But it's in the storytelling.
0: That doesn't surprise me because they're very conversational.
2: Very conversational. I think they're actually quite gentle, really, for yes. an adult novel. You know, they're, they're, they're very sweet and very open and very accessible. So I, I would scour secondhand bookstores to buy all of James Herriot's works. But obviously I read younger fiction as well, from Ruth Park to Paul Jennings. I love Paul Jennings and Roald Dahl and Enid Blyton, Judy Bloom, All these books were, were very dear to me. There was one book in particular that, that I've always remembered and I I picked it up speculatively from the, our school library. I think I must have been maybe eight or nine years old, and it introduced me to a raft of feelings that I'd never experienced before. And I mention it because there are some dovetails with Honeybee. And that book is called Goodnight, Mr. Tom by Michelle Magorian. And it's about a friendship that blooms between a young boy from London who travels up north during the Blitz. Uh, to go and stay with a sort of old crotchety widower called Mr. Tom. Uh, and the two, you know, the, the, the child called Will is quite damaged and neglected, and he very slowly becomes part of this community. And as a kid, it just really ripped me wide open. I was able to kind of appreciate what the world was like for, for other kids that didn't share the same background as, as I did. So that was a special book. I, I read that a whole bunch. You know, I read everything and anything. I, I, I loved the classics. I loved Mark Twain when I was a kid. Uh, I adored Mad Magazine. I uh, read so a bunch of those.
0: Had you read To Kill a Mockingbird?
2: I encountered that book, uh, I think, for the first time when I was 14. Mm. Yeah. And because that's, when uh, I
0: finished reading Jasper Jones, mm. that's what I thought of.
2: Right, yeah. It's, it's been an impactful book on my life. And I go back to it quite often, actually. And I, and I, oh, wow. yeah. I, and and it changes with every read. You know, you you strip away an, another layer of maturity and, and sophistication uh, each time you go back to us. And it's strange to go back as an adult and see who you connect with now. When I read it the first time, obviously, I was very tight with Scout. But the older I get, the more I go back to that book. I feel so aligned with Atticus. Uh, and uh, the difficulties that, that he faces and the challenges that he's he's under, it's as perfect, it's as close to perfect as a book has ever been and the lessons therein are not a bad ethical groundwork to to live your life by.
0: Mm. So you're a great reader and while you were reading, did you ever feel that you were going to be a great writer?
2: I'm not sure about great writer, but <laughs> uh, but the moment I realised that, I could make something up that I could tell a story, give it to somebody else and to have them experience or go through the same processes that I did as a reader, that I could gift that to somebody else. Even as a kid writing little stories, it was absolutely awe inspiring. It just made sense to me. And it's just something that I did constantly. It wasn't until I was in my sort of early teens, around about 14, that, that I, Determined that being a writer, that writing was going to inform the entirety of my life and it was going to be an enduring passion that I would dedicate myself to. And that's now essentially what happened.
0: Was, was that a conscious thought?
2: Well, what happened was that there was a novelist who came to our high school and spoke, and his name's Glyn Parry. Um, he's a young adult writer. And it was the first time that I'd ever met or encountered a a writer, a real writer before. And just the simple fact of him kind of just clarified to me that, that writers weren't distant deities. They were real people who who, uh, who sat down in a room and, and uh, made a living out of telling stories. And it just confirmed to me that's who I was. And that's what I had to do. And so when I was 14, that's what I determined would be the trajectory of my life. I saved up to to buy a computer. I was living a on an orchard, I grew up in an orchard. Uh, and so I spent many, many hours picking apples and packing apples and thinning apple trees and pruning uh, to afford a computer to write this novel. And I spent 18 months on it and it was awful, but I got back in touch with that writer. I, I, I contacted Glynn, wrote him a very impassioned letter signaling my intent and my dedication to literature and letters. And, you know, we struck up a correspondence and, and he was enormously influential in my life. He gave me the belief to to continue on, uh, so but he never that, lied to me.
0: That book that you wrote at fourteen that was awful. Yeah, don't you think that that's called practice?
2: Oh goodness, yeah, I don't regret writing it. And um, the the older I get, the more I I'm aware that it's kind of remarkable that that I sat down and very discreetly, Cheryl. No one ever knew what I was doing. Why uh, was it a you know, secret? You know, it was for me. Books have always been. Uh, reading and writing have, have always been something that I've done on my own and i felt the need, well, not, certainly not now, but, but as a younger person, you know, I grew up in a rough town and talking about loving books and uh, reading and writing them was, uh, was, was not the done thing, you know, it was, a, it was a recipe for disaster. It certainly didn't up the stakes of my social currency and so I just learned to be quite Not even family.
0: with the girls?
2: Oh, God, no, no, nobody, nobody. <laughs>
0: because nobody. <laughs> um, I would have liked to have met a 14-year-old writer.
2: Well, well, I wish I could go back in time, Cheryl. I mean, I wish I'd known this. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> I, mean, so I Missed after, an opportunity. Yeah, that's right. That's right, absolutely. So after that, so how did your career pan out from there?
2: So essentially what happened was, I, you know, I didn't lose hope uh, and I had an awareness of how difficult things would be, but... I wanted it very, very badly and, you know, I finished my high school education but I eschewed university for romantic reasons really rather than anything else. I just wanted to write and so I started working on notes for my first novel, Rhubarb, when I was in my last year of high school, so I was 16. Yeah, wow. And I moved out of home, I moved out of the orchard and came to Fremantle and started working on Rhubarb and, you know, working every shitty entry-level job that, uh, that you could think of. You know, I cleaned toilets, I pulled beers, I worked at cafes, I worked in a hardware store for three years and I still know nothing about hardware, all just to fund the time to write. And Rhubarb took me three years and it took me another 12 to 18 months to, to find the right publisher.
0: What point did you know you had something with
2: Rhubarb? Oh, I'm not sure I ever did. No. Um, that book was my apprenticeship really. I was sorting myself out. I was learning my voice. I was experimenting and trial and erroring my way to uh, structuring a novel. And so I never quite felt in command. Uh, I never quite felt good enough. You know, that's another reason why I neglected really to tell anybody what I was doing. Nobody knew that I was writing a novel during those three years of developing Ruby. People just thought I worked at a hardware store. And
0: Even the same uh, then, you didn't tell anyone.
2: I that when, uh, I had to I had to learn how to speak to people about it only by virtue of the fact that I got published and I had to start doing wow. press. Yeah, so this is a this is a skill I've had to assemble yeah. over the years. Really, you know, it's always been very very private to me. No, no, I had to come clean eventually and say, well, actually, I've been working on a novel for a few years. You know, which surprised some family and friends and people in my orbit. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever felt. I loved the characters in my book and I felt this intuitive sense that that it was progressing with some semblance of quality, but I had no frame of reference really uh, that, that led me to believe it was good enough. You know, it's taken me 20 years to cultivate that kind of belief. It's a difficult job and you nurse a lot of doubts when you're in a quiet room on your own, thwacking your head against your keyboard Um, so it's, it's taken me a long time to get enough runs on the board to, to have this really strong will.
0: I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me
2: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
0: Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let me tell you something. I don't know if this is going to make you feel better or worse, but I'll tell you anyway. I spoke to Lee Child a few years ago, and uh, I don't know, I think he's written something like 20 books. Anyways, back in the days where we were doing podcasts face-to-face. And he said to me that even up to, you know, he's now up to his, let's say, 21st book, it's still as hard as it was when he started his first. And meaning the writing process, but also the confidence. Do I have a story? Is it, you know, strong enough? Is it? And it's the same feeling he was saying as writing his first book.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And it is. There's something mercurial about developing new work because if it is new, if you're not rehashing old old ideas, it's a journey into the unknown. And what you're relying on every day when you attend to the office is that something will show up and you just have to have this intrinsic faith in your ability to invent and hope that it will be good enough to to service the story and, and that you have the ability to articulate those ideas clearly enough to satisfy a reader and to move them there's a lot of moving parts to a novel and it's very very difficult to do creating something is it's a different kind of job Um, without
0: a doubt i mean you know people often say oh and are you going to write something well you know i've spoken to 300 authors probably in the last two or three years and i still can't write a sentence i mean because it's one there's craft Two, there's having the story. Three, as you said, there's having the confidence to keep going. I mean, there's so much in it. And it's a super, super tough gig, I think. And then will I or won't I get published? Will my publisher like it or won't they? And then you put it, so you've gone through all of that and then you put it out in the world and you've got the reviewers. Will they like it? Won't they like it? And then you've got the readers. I mean, who gets scrutinised to that degree?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Uh, it's, it's an odd thing. For me, I've learned to compartmentalize some of those aspects. And so I really have to displace myself from notions of readership and and audience, even the publishing industry, which has been ultimately the most supportive atmosphere for me in my career. I can't think about it when I'm working. All that matters to me uh, when I'm developing a book like Honeybee, for example, which is so intimate and relies on a lot of nuance. The only thing that matters to me are the characters that inhabit that story and the the narrative itself that's all you can attend to and it's ultimately all that you can control uh i'm really hopeful that a lot of people can can pick up honeybee and uh be moved by it and compelled by it and find it a meaningful read but it's entirely beyond my control now you know it's 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 going to go on its own journey and it's exciting and thrilling but uh you know, there is a whole lot of anxiety <laughs> attached to uh, to releasing a book like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree. Tell me about um, getting rhubarb published. I want to just kind of see how that that career or tell us about how that career launched.
2: Really, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an it's an interesting one because I was still a teenager. I had I was so green about the publishing industry. I had no idea how it worked. I didn't even know what an agent was, let alone what their role was. Um, and so, what I did was. I finished Rhubarb within two days of the uh, the deadline for the Vogel Awards and I sent it in and waited. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, uh, obviously, I didn't win. I was robbed. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I made a short list that the judges sent on to Alan Nunwin, as, as fates may be, uh, for further scrutiny. And it landed on the desk of a, of a really wonderful editor there who couldn't quite get it up the chain. They wouldn't quite supportive enough but she solicited it to to other publishers and sent it around and so for a year or so I continued to get very lovely but deflating rejections and it wasn't until I reconnected with Glyn Parry who was the author that came to my school and he read my manuscript and was very kind about it and we went to an industry event uh, here in Fremantle actually and he introduced me to Ray Coffey, who was an editor at Fremantle Press at the time. And he pulled Ray up and he said, Ray, you need to read this kid's manuscript. And then Glenn said, he's the next Tim Winton.
0: Oh, wow. Need to
2: get onto it. So I sent Ray the manuscript the next day and Ray had it for a weekend. And he offered me a contract on Monday, on the Monday. And it validated all that work. And I have the greatest affection for Fremantle Press and the role they play in uh, publishing here in Australia. They've launched so many careers and they're a great they company.
0: They do such a great job. Such they a really great do. job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I they punch well
2: above their weight. Yeah. yeah. And so that was, that was where Rhubarb was born. Um, and uh, how did and so I feel
0: to, to finally be published?
2: Oh, my goodness. It was thrilling uh, exciting, um, validating, gratifying—you know—it was just amazing to have that opportunity to, you know, I'd walk into bookstores as a teenager and go to the S section and see where I'd fit on the shelf and dream about it. Um,
0: <laughs> I love that.
2: <laughs> you know, and, and I and I'd see who I'd be fitting between and uh, and where I might one day be, and it was such a great motivator. And and to I don't know to have that ambition realized I, mean, I I still feel it's so special you know I'm being, right now I'm being sent photos and window displays and and just these just amazing degrees of support by booksellers in Australia and it's just it just gives me this same giddy thrill you know it's just the most amazing thing and so it was incredible to to have an idea that I had a manuscript that I would written now exist as a book as a noun, something you could hold and and, and a reader could share in, that was incredible, yeah.
0: I'm just thinking about Jasper Jones, which was your next book. How many years between uh, Rhubarb and Jasper Jones?
2: So it would have been five years, Yeah. So Do I you
0: know, rhubarb, yeah. I, I don't know if you know this, but we have a top 100 that we ask out. Of course, readers. yeah. Well, every year Jasper Jones is in it. Every single year, I think it features in the top 20 of the list.
2: So the readers
0: have decided that that's an Australian classic,
2: haven't they? Yeah, I mean, well, if it was left for authors to decide, there'd be a lot out there. But <laughs> uh, I can't begin to describe how meaningful that is to me and, and how, how incredible support was, how incredibly supported I've always felt by uh, the, the reading public. It's so special to me. And it's just, uh, just an, uh, just an astonishingly gratifying degree of support. You know, it's really wonderful that, that so many people have come to that book and uh, for it, for it to have the trajectory and the endurance that it's had is just really remarkable. And uh, yeah, the, the significance is certainly not lost on me.
0: Yeah, it's a timeless book too. So tell me, tell me a little bit about um, Honey Bee. Tell me about the story and tell me where that came from, where the seed of the idea came from.
2: Look, Honey Bee is about a young teenager called Sam Watson. Mm-hmm. And we meet Sam for the first time late one night as they step onto a quiet traffic bridge here in Western Australia and they climb over the railing and look down with the intention of ending their life. And at the other end of the bridge is an old man. His name is Vic. He's smoking his last cigarette and he's there to end his own struggle. And the two notice each other. They see each other across the void uh, and their fates are forever changed. And Honeybee is centrally about the relationship that blooms between the two of them and the efforts they uh, they make to repair each other. And it's ultimately about... The importance of support and understanding and community, and where the story emerged from. It you know authors are invariably asked where their ideas came come from, and I always find it a tricky uh, question to tackle, to be honest with you. But in this case, Honeybee has a very clear genesis. It actually stems from a real event, and late one night. Several years ago and now, my brother was picking up his partner from the airport and he was bringing her home to Fremantle and they crossed the Canning Highway overpass. And through the corner of his eye, he saw a young person who was on the other side of the railing and were suspended precariously. And so he pulled over immediately and he called the police while his partner got out and her name is Sam. And she approached this young person, largely with the ambition to uh, distract them while help was on the way. So my brother finished uh, speaking to the police and then he immediately uh, contacted me and I was at home working and I was concerned and worried and heartbroken and very connected to this moment. So he continued to give me updates. So Sam approached this young person and they spoke about everything and nothing uh, until they volunteered the reasons why they were there. They were struggling with issues surrounding their gender identity, They had lost the support of family and friends. Uh, They'd been kicked out of home. They were alone in the world and they found themselves in a hopeless, anguished, helpless place. And soon after, the police arrived in an ambulance and they were quite brusque. They pulled this young person back over the railing and sort of deposited them uh, in the back of an ambulance And Sam was essentially summarily dismissed. She didn't need to give a statement or anything of that nature. She was just told to leave. And we tried to reconnect with this person over the coming days, but they had a very common name and they were very difficult to to find. And so I was left with a very real person and a very real predicament and a very real challenge uh, who existed largely in my imagination they wouldn't leave my thoughts and I wanted to get to know them better. Uh, I wanted to understand them and I wanted to educate myself better as to what they were contending with. And as we've discussed, my, my process throughout my life in, in terms of trying to understand things and, and process the abstract has been to write about it and to read about it. Uh, and so that's largely where Honeybee began.
0: Beautiful story. It is so beautiful. It is so moving. And just by you describing it again has just given me goosebumps. Um, we've got to end it here. Did you ever find out what happened to him?
2: No. 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 Yeah. No, it's it's uh, still an enduring mystery. And, uh, you know, I was speaking to my editor about it recently and, and we wondered about the fact that... That, that, that we hope that maybe out of the woodwork, one of the amazing outcomes for Honeybee, the novel, might be that uh, we hear from that person. Just to, uh, know that, that, that
0: just to know that they're okay. That's all. That's right. Yeah. 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 Craig, Sylvie, honestly, I feel that you're a superstar. You really are. I mean, you're an Australian treasure. And I know that we often say that about older people, but you are so inspiring. You're a beautiful writer, beautiful insight. It's the real deal. Anyway. <laughs> That's my opinion.
2: <laughs> thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it, and I do appreciate your support and and your belief in my work. It it just means the world. I've I've, I've really appreciated it for a very long time. Uh, so thank you.
0: Well, as I say, it's about the story, so it, it's over to you. But thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our chat.
2: Thanks, Cheryl. Me too. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.